Welcome to another George Consortium COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing presented by our colleagues around the country and associated with Public Health Watch at Northeastern University, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, and the Week in Health Law Podcast. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Joining me today are Dr. Michael Sinner, a research fellow at the Harvard-MIT Center for Regulatory Science, and Professor Patricia Zettler from the Ohio State Moritz College of Law. We'll be taking questions towards the end of the broadcast. Please ask them at PHLAWWATCH, that's PHLAWWATCH, or with the hashtag COVID Law Briefing. President Trump has consistently encouraged uh, coronavirus patients to try new pharmaceutical treatments using phrases such as, so what do I know? I'm not a doctor, or my favorite, uh, what do you have to lose? So, Michael, what are these apparent treatment options being floated? What do they or do they not do as far as we know? And sort of what's their current regulatory status? So the key here is that hydroxychloroquine has not been rigorously studied in randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled studies, which is the gold standard, and I think which we need to expect from therapies for uh, COVID-19. Uh, remdesivir is another drug that's under investigation. So this is Gilead's investigational treatment for Ebola and Marburg disease. It's not been approved, but Gilead has uh, been uh, giving the drug out under compassionate use protocols. A recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine showed some promising data, but really more study is needed in a controlled fashion. Uh, This study in the New England Journal was essentially a case series, and many have pointed to the fact that there were more authors on that paper than there were actual patients enrolled in that study. And so I think really the best approach is to access and study the drug via clinical trials. And I've noticed that there are, in fact, disparities in access to compassionate use in clinical trials in the setting of COVID-19, even here in Boston. The major Harvard affiliate hospitals, of course, have free access to the drug for enrollment in clinical trials and for compassionate use. The safety net hospital, from what I'm hearing, has not been able to access the drug even for compassionate use. There are some other antiviral meds with inconclusive data. So lapinavir, ritonavir, which is an HIV therapy, It showed some limited value in SARS, but uh, does cause liver injury in some patients. Ribavirin is another drug, an older drug that worked well in SARS, but actually causes hemolytic anemia in over half of patients. So it's potentially very dangerous, especially if we're thinking about treating millions of people. And oseltamivir or Tamiflu hasn't really shown any uh, effect against SARS or uh, this current uh, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. The last real approach that I've seen potential promise is immunoglobulin therapy. So taking convalescent plasma from someone who has recovered and infusing that into a sick patient. There's some anecdotal evidence of benefit, but again, this is not well studied. And really, I think the the final thing we're really going to need to, to get through this is to get a vaccine developed, right? And so I think we're at least a couple of years away on vaccines. Um, there are over 70 that are in development and three are in human clinical trials, but we really need these to be rigorously studied both drugs and vaccines because we're going to be using these in, a, in potentially hundreds of millions or billions of people. So getting the evidence right is extremely important. So Patty, let's turn to you with that phrase. Uh, what do you have to lose? Um, can you level us up uh, on what it means to have clinical trials 
what does the FDA do? Why does it take so much time and so on? It's very understandable for people to think we're in the middle of this historic pandemic. We don't have time to wait. We need drugs or vaccines for COVID-19 now. Um, And if an individual patient wants to take the risk of taking something that's not proven or maybe has serious, known serious side effects, but no evidence or limited evidence of effectiveness for COVID-19, that person should be able to decide to do that. I think that's sort of an understandable impulse. But the reality is, as Michael said, that we can't afford not to do clinical trials and have good evidence right now. Um, So we think about FDA's, we can think about FDA's role in requiring clinical trials and requiring pre-market approval for drugs and vaccines as protecting us physically from unsafe and ineffective products. But a really key part of FDA's role in approving products is not just that we're all physically protected from unsafe and ineffective products, but instead companies are forced to develop the data and the information that we need to understand whether drugs and vaccines do what we think they might. And without clinical trials, without good data, we'll never know what works and what doesn't for COVID-19. And that's bad for individual patients. And that's bad for all of us on a public health level. You know, we might, um, you know, another way to think about it is it's not that FDA per se makes the drug approval process slow and long. It's that the reality is it's actually really difficult and time intensive and important to know exactly what medicines do. And, um, you know, it will come as no surprise to, to the folks on this call that, you know, I think we need a robust FDA. But the reality is whether we have an FDA or not, it would take time and money and would be difficult to do the hard work to figure out what works and what doesn't for COVID. Um, And, you know, I would encourage everyone to think about it like it's not a therapy, it's not a vaccine if it doesn't work. We really need to know what works and what doesn't. So when you're dealing with a drug that's already out there, are there shortcuts in the clinical trials towards FDA approval or do things more or less sort of have to start all over again? If there's a drug that's already out there and it's already approved, then generally, but not always, physicians are free to prescribe it for whatever they see fit. So that's known as an off-label use. I wasn't so much going for the off-label use. It's the process that the FDA uses, the clinical trials. Are there shortcuts when it's an established drug? How does an established drug get a new indication approved? When it's an established drug to get a new indication approved, there could be, after the 2016-21st Century Cures Act, um, FDA can rely on what's known as real-world evidence to approve new indications for already approved drugs. So that could be something other than than randomized controlled trials. Um, and of course, if the drug's already approved, we already know a lot more about it than we know about something that's totally novel. We have a lot more sort of safety information about how it's used and things like that. So it can be faster. You know, here I would say, you know, my sort of public health policy or law perspective would be we still need randomized controlled trials for um, those drugs that are already approved for the reasons that I and Michael sort of threw out there, which is, you know, it's really, it's actually even more critical right now that we know what works and what doesn't. Major health organizations have warned against using uh, HYQ, yet New York, for example, has apparently been stockpiling the, the drug, even maybe using it. What's the, the legal background to what's going on here? Um, there's something called an emergency use authorization. There's compassionate use. Patty, can you talk a little bit about that? Michael mentioned, and as you just mentioned, Nick, um, I'll call it, uh, what is it, H- H6, 
CQ rather than the long name for the malaria drug because I'm terrible at pronouncing things. Um, but uh, HCQ is already approved. And so in general, physicians are free to prescribe it for COVID-19, even though it's not approved for that uh, for that indication. Nevertheless, FDA has issued emergency use authorizations for the drug. And that's to allow the strategic national stockpile to uh, distribute the drug for COVID-19. So basically, physicians could prescribe it. Anyway, the emergency use authorization for that drug is a mechanism to allow uh, distribution for COVID-19 from the strategic national stockpile. Um, in terms of compassionate use or expanded access, that is the mechanism that Michael was talking about that permits patients to access un totally unapproved drugs outside of a clinical trial and for treatment purposes. And I believe, although maybe Michael, you can weigh in, Gilead is going through expanded access. So has FDA's authorization to provide that pre-approval outside of clinical trials access to patients and is going through the FDA process to do that. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Michael, we've alluded a couple of times to off-label use. Uh, uh, there's a dichotomy between the approval of the drug by the FDA and the actual uses that it can be put to by physicians. Uh, that is sometimes referred to as off-label use. Can you help us through this uh, particular pile of rotting spaghetti? <laughs> sure. So, I mean, f physicians can always prescribe medications, approved medications off-label. And uh, the American Medical Association has always fought for this, has uh, tried to protect the physician's right to practice medicine. And so that operates independently of an emergency use authorization. It does not mean that hydroxychloroquine has been approved for use for treating COVID-19, but it means that physicians can prescribe. And there's actually, I think, a real concern that abundant off-label prescribing in the setting of COVID-19 is going to take away from access to rheumatoid arthritis and lupus patients who really need the medication. And I think we're already starting to see anecdotal evidence of that. As I mentioned before, the drug does have some dangerous side effects, some drug-drug interactions that we need to be concerned about, especially if we're talking about using this drug on millions of patients. Now, the the difference between hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir is that given that remdesivir is not yet approved, physicians cannot prescribe it off-label. And that's why we have to go through compassionate use. And I, my concern here is even once it's approved, the prohibitive cost is likely to push patients and hospitals either toward expanded access, toward clinical trials, away from off-label use, just because it's going to cost quite a bit to hospital systems. I, I will note that Gilead has pushed back a little bit against expanded access and in fact halted it for a period of time, although I think they're very open to studying this in clinical trials. And they're really hedging on these promising, but again, unreliable results. You know, it's interesting because some states are pushing for limited liability for physicians who are treating COVID-19. And I think the danger here is we shouldn't extend that liability protection to include non-evidence-based care. And so if we start to see physicians stockpiling or writing excess prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine in the absence of evidence that it's working. Uh, those physicians really need to be held to liability standards. I will note that protocols for treating COVID-19 are changing rapidly, and that means that physicians really have to adapt to new standards regularly. And so this early in the game, it's very hard to say, here's our treatment, we're going to stick with it throughout the course of this pandemic. I, I will say 
that the Brigham and Women's Hospital, among other hospitals, have COVID protocols. There's a website that you can go to to look at protocols. And they actually say very clearly on the website, do not print this out. This data is subject to change, right? So it's going to change very, very quickly. The other thing I'll note about off-label use is that physicians are generally constrained from discussing off-label uses with uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and also in uh, CME continuing medical education conferences. So it's really interesting that the president of the United States can stand up in front of a podium and uh, promote off-label use of medications. And apparently there is a financial conflict of interest at play, but again, he's a non-physician attempting to practice medicine. So I think there is real concern when that happens. Oh, I was just going to add that one additional function of the EUA uh, that FDA authorizes for products, whether approved or not, uh, is is it extends some of the liability protections under federal law. Um, but that uh, sort of whether physicians can talk about off-label uses and how is it that the president can talk about promote off-label uses is, you know, basically when we talk about the regulation of off-label promotion by the FDA, we're talking about statements that are made by or, by, or on behalf of the drug manufacturer. So, you know, I have no financial ties to uh, the companies that manufacture the relevant drugs. I could say whatever I'd like about them. I don't change the intended use of the product because I have no connection to the drug manufacturer. And so uh, so there's no legal hook for FDA to regulate there. The other thing I wanted to add to what Michael was saying is in terms of concerns about stockpiling, we I think it's important to remember that FDA is not the only player. It's not in the federal government. It's not the only player here. Um, some state departments of pharmacy have limited the ways that HCQ can be prescribed or dispensed. I guess dispensed because we're talking about boards of pharmacies. If I'm recalling correctly, Ohio's board of pharmacy has limited dispensing for family members of physicians or something like that. So I, without mm. without opening up uh, the internet and maybe crashing our call and refreshing my memory, I can't remember exactly exactly what the limits are. But some state boards of pharmacy are stepping in to try to prevent that stockpiling um, and ensure that patients who have the indications that there's actually evidence to support use of the drug can still access the drug. So, of course, time is rushing by and we have to let the good people of the Twitter world get back to staring at their blank walls. I think Dr. Fauci said in an interview, I can't just push the president off the stage and stop him saying these things. But we could ask the question, what should we be looking for policymakers to be coming out and saying? What should they be doing? And I guess what question should the press, even sort of the fake news part of the press, be asking in these times? Why don't we start with you, Michael, and then finish with Patty? Yeah, I think it's really hard to know at this point. I think we have to expect and hold uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, uh, physicians, uh, politicians to a rigorous standard for uh study of drugs in uh, COVID-19. And so what that really means is staving off this desire for a quick fix. Obviously, we, we would love to have a therapy tomorrow that is safe and effective and can be uh, distributed to millions and billions of people across the globe. That would be perfect. But we're just not there yet. And so I think we, we have to go through the process and allow the process to take place. That means clinical trials. That means thorough a drug evaluation. That does not mean cutting corners. That does not mean resorting to uh, what uh, Ben Rome and Jerry Avorn has described as appealing yet risky quick fixes. Uh, yeah, I agree with, with everything Michael said. I think um, I would encourage, I think communication about science and public health right now is so critical. And I would encourage
encourage policymakers, regulators, uh, journalists reporting on these issues to be very thoughtful in the way they talk about the status of these various products. Emergency use authorizations are not approvals and the standards are very different. And, uh, you know, to do everything we can to try to stave off that um, sense that there is a quick fix out there, uh, because as Michael said, we're just everyone wants a safe and effective vaccine and therapy. We're just not there yet. And we need we need the time to do the hard work and develop the data to get there. Well, thank you to my wonderful guests and thank you all for watching and listening. Remember, we'll be broadcasting here on Twitter at noon Eastern time every Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. Just go to at P-H-L-A-W-W-A-T-C-H or search for the hashtag COVID law briefing. Show notes are at publichealthlawwatch.org and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at twill, that's T-W-I-H-L dot com. The COVID-19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kallick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.